Well, I am breaking out of our, um, our study in 2 Corinthians, but I think it's important to know, uh, first of all, pastors aren't disassociated from the preaching of the Word of God. Uh, I've had pastors say, and I, I'm, not, I'm not disrespecting how pastors uh, approach this, but many times pastors talk about their study of the Word of God. Um, and in their personal life, you need to have your devotional life, and you shouldn't uh, really come to your preaching as a part of your devotional life. That's a different thing. Um, and yet, I will tell you that many of the blessings that I get out of the Word of God are uh, coming to you with what I have found and what I am sharing many times from the pulpit. I would say really every time that I'm sharing the Word of God, there are things there that have impacted my life uh, in the study of the Word, and that's what I'm bringing. And this morning, I felt like um, we needed a time where we talk about what we are as a church and what we're doing. And uh, there's a lot of different titles I could have given to this message. Uh, one is how not to kill a church. And, uh, and instead, I gave love him, live for him. Uh, but I am sharing these things with you maybe as a I don't know if I can call it a culmination, but if I called it a culmination, it would be a culmination of the trips that we've had, of our walk through 2 Corinthians, the burden that I uh, believe the Lord has given to my heart, but it comes out of Scripture. So I'm not sharing with you just a burden that Jeff Estes has. I think I'm sharing with you the burden that the Scriptures bring to us. So if I was to ask you this morning, What's the most important thing that you could do with your life? What are the most important priorities that you have in your life? What does it mean for you to get up in the morning and to do what you do? Uh, what is it? You know, another way to say it is what drives you? What gives you the joy of living a day? And honestly, there are a lot of people who struggle over that, uh, struggle with the idea, well, I don't enjoy my day. I don't have anything to look forward to. I don't have any, uh, to say it this way, uh, focus or goal that God is giving me that gives me the energy to live a joy-filled life. I'm struggling where I am. And that's, frankly, that's a whole other message. But I'm going to come down to some fundamentals. And, and I just want to give you some basics this morning. But these basics drive the church life. And, and I want to kind of give the scope of reference for that. Uh, whenever we talk about church, we're often talking about congregationally, what we're doing as a congregation. And we're going to have a business meeting tonight. And our business meeting tonight, while Pastor Phil gave a little bit of the announcement to it, our business meeting is more of a family discussion. And it's going to be an outflowing of family discussion about ministry. Uh, for whatever reason, here we are sitting here on this planet at this time in this place in history, and God has given us this opportunity to serve Him together. He's navigated so that you, as a part of this body, are a part of the partnership and team of the body of Christ that God has designed to navigate and do what He has for us. And that happens as a corporate body, but it also happens in individual life. For the corporate body is made up of each one of those individuals really walking with God and trying to be the steward of what God has given them. And I think it's important to have messages like this where we get our focus and we know what we're about and we know what we're doing and we know what God is in front of us. And yet in knowing that, there are going to be particulars of decisions that we make that we need to make as a family. 
And we need to decide, okay, what is God doing with us? And I think it comes back to whenever we make decisions as churches, just as an individual, our, decision, our decisions need to be doctrinally based. That what we do need to be derived or are coming from the Word of God. So when I come to you this morning, I say, what is it that drives your life? What makes you do what you do? What is it that you believe that God has called you to be doing? In other words, what are the most important things that God would have us to do? Now, I recently had a conversation with someone that was, it felt heated. It felt, it felt uh, contrary. And uh, in that discussion, it was about doctrine that I disagreed with this person about their doctrine. And they were passionate and I didn't have an opinion. Uh, and in that, I walked away from that and I was able to come back just a, a few minutes later and I, I, I told them, I asked them this question and I wasn't trying to set them up, but I asked this, this question. I said, what's the most important thing that God has given us to do? And, and you know, their answer was a good answer. They said the gospel. Now, if you look at Spurgeon's answer on the gospel, he would say uh, that it is the most important thing. There's a quote we just gave in our Sunday school class. He said, it's the chief work of every believer. Now, that's, that's true. But I actually, at least in the context of this conversation that I was having with this individual, I said, no, uh, the gospel is important, but it isn't the most important thing that we do. The most important thing that you and I do is found in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew 22, I'm going to argue that the most important thing that you and I have to decide to do is to love the Lord. We need to love him. And if that is not where it needs to be, then you begin to see the fruit of that borne out in other areas of our lives. Now, when we talk about loving the Lord, understand the context. This isn't a sincere question. This is a question coming from the Pharisees that were really trying to um, uh, stump Jesus, as it were. So we're in Matthew 22, verse 34. I'm going to have you read verses 34 through 40 out loud with me. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Matthew twenty two thirty four. would you begin with me now? But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And that illustration I gave with the one I was having a bit of a discussion with, I came back to, you know, what we are called to do is love each other as brothers. And I want to tell you, it changed the conversation for the rest of the time that we were together. Uh, because it was coming back to the principle of loving the Lord and loving each other. And when we come to this aspect in our lives, we have to ask ourselves this question, does it matter to God that we love him? And I know it's rhetorical, you know the answer. So does it matter to God that we love him? So what drives you to be here in this place this morning? What drives you to be sitting where you are? Well, frankly, there could be a lot of different reasons why you're here, but the best reason we can give back to worshiping and to worshiping God is that we love him. Do you agree? I, well, I shouldn't ask you to agree. I agree. <laughs> I hope you agree. I think it ought to be the sentiment of our heart that we are here this morning 
not because our parents made us be here, not because we're feeling some kind of obligation, but we're here because we love it. And I will say, if you didn't come with that in mind, you'll leave with a different spirit than those that did. So if you didn't come here loving the Lord and doing it because you love him to begin with, you can leave as, as you came. You can leave where uh, the message, the service had no impact on you because it's not what drove you here. And yet, I would say for every believer, this is what God has called us to, that we love him supremely. So I ask the question, does it matter to God that we love him? Well, I argue through this passage it does, and not just that we argue that we love the Lord in sentiment. Now, Pastor Phil shared a, I, that's why I asked, I, he shared a picture with me the other day, and it was just yesterday, and it kind of has been lingering in my head. It's a picture, I think, of a stick person holding their heart up to God, and they say something like, uh, I, I don't have much, but this is all I have to give. And they're holding their heart up to the Lord. And he asked what I thought about that, and I was kind of, I didn't know what to think about it at first. Uh, but he followed up with this. Is that really all that you have to offer God? Is that really all you have to offer God, your heart? Well, you might be saying, well, he's trying to trick me. I'm not going to answer because he's trying to trick me. And I'm not trying to trick you. Matter of fact, I looked at it. Pastor Phil was ahead of me on it um, because I just looked. I didn't really know how to answer that. But I'll give you some scope here. Uh, when you love the Lord, it causes or directs our lives completely. So this passage doesn't just say that you love the Lord your God with all your heart. But it goes on to say with all thy what? And with all thy with all thy mind. Now, there are other passages that would uh, commend that also we love the Lord with all of our strength. And that gives us the indication that we aren't just loving God from the inside, but that there is an earnestness to it that directs in our lives. Now, what causes a person to read their Bible in the morning? or in the afternoon, or in the evening. What causes a person to do that? Well, there could be reasons that are constraint. There could be reasons that, well, I was told I need to do this, and I'm doing it because that's what a believer is supposed to do, and so I'm going to do it out of duty. Now, is that a reason to do it? Yes, it is. I won't even call that an illegitimate reason. I think that we should do it because God commands us to do so. But really, the better heart of doing is because you thirst for God. The better heart for doing is because you want to fellowship with Him. Because you desire him. Why does a person pray? You could answer this in a whole host of messages. Uh, the Lord motivates it. The Lord directs it. The Lord commands it. But why do we pray? At its core, it really is a desire for him. It's a desire for God to be in fellowship with him, a desire for God to walk with him. It's a desire for God to be in your life and lead your life and guide your life. What makes you pray? I'm going to say it's the Holy Spirit in conjunction with his word out of a heart of love that directs us to pray. Take your Bibles to John 21. <coughs> Excuse me. So, when we say that we love the Lord or know that God has given this as the chief commandment, <coughs> excuse me, how does that affect us and what does it mean for us? What we do needs to be directed out of a love for him. And I'm asking the question still, does it matter? <coughs> does it matter that we love him? <coughs> Pardon me, sorry about that. In John 21, verses 15 through 17, we have the Lord, and you know the passage well, speaking to Peter. So when they had dined in verse 15 of John 21, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, what does he ask him? 
<coughs> Lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Now, <clears throat> his response in this last one gets to the point, I think, that which we all see. If the Lord was to ask you three times, what do you think you would feel? If the Lord was to ask you three times, do you love him? What would your thought be at the end of that third question? The thought at the end of that third question has got to be something along the lines, well, don't you believe me? Or maybe Peter had already this suspicion in his heart that he didn't, and the Lord was confirming it. I don't know what it was, but I know that by asking it three times, he was giving the importance of what Peter needed to have as his focus. But I'm going to ask you something based on this passage. Was asking him that he loved him all that he was communicating, that you need to love me? Was asking him that if he loved him, was love for God all that God was drawing out of Peter? So if we say no, why do we think it's more than just loving him? Why do we think it's more than do you love me? Well, it's more because he gave him something to do. Now, I do think we get this backwards so many times. We come to the Lord and he says, come to me for my burden is light. He says, my yoke is easy, easy and light. But I think many times we take upon us a service that is heavy. Let me tell you what makes it heavy when you don't want to do it. You ever been there? You know what gets heavy? I have this thing in my house. Uh, and I, it's not like, it's not like um, I just have a principle that I, I, I guess I'm selfish about it. Uh, when I get up in the morning and I come downstairs to the kitchen, there's something I really don't want to see. And you know what I don't want to see? I don't want to see yesterday. I don't want to see yesterday because I start my day feeling like I'm catching up with what didn't get done the day before. So I, I, when, when we go to bed, many times uh, I will rally the troops and say, hey, we need to get the kitchen cleaned up before we go to bed. And I know that when I do that, all the family's like, yay. Just what I wanted to do. Sometimes they've already been in bed. And, you know, my, my kids do a great job. If I was them and my dad was telling me to do that, I wouldn't be going, thank you, dad. I'm so excited to come back down in my pajamas and do this. Um, but, you know, we... When we, when we get a mindset of service to the Lord that we've got to do something that we don't want to do, it all of a sudden changes the context of ministry. It changes the context of everything. And let me say this about us as individuals and as a church. This place has got to always be about the love of God. And all God's people said, it's always got to be that. It's always got to be that.
If it's not that, you begin fighting over all kinds of stuff. Should we do this and should we do that? And, and by the way, we, we have to make decisions as a church if we're going to be doing God's business. If we're going to be doing, does God have stuff for us to do? Then do, do decisions have to be made? So you got to make the decisions and you either do or don't. And you want God's wisdom in what you do, but God, is not, God has not called us to simply occupy until he comes. God has not called us as individuals or a church simply to be in a place on the map. So I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But this aspect of loving the Lord that God drives Peter's heart to is a love that is born out then in God wanting to follow that up with doing what he had called him to do. So I want you to take your Bibles now to John 14, back a few pages, John 14 and verse 15. And you have, you have these conditional statements, not conditional, but, well, maybe conditional. It's a, it's a statement that says, if this is so, logically, then this needs to follow. I think you probably already know where I'm going with this. John chapter 14 and verse 15, you got your Bible there? If you, if you do, read it out loud with me. John 14, 15 with me. If you love me, keep my commandments. Amen? If you love me, how would we say that today? If you love me, what? If you love me, you can say obey. If you love me, do what I say. Is that fair? Hello? Is it fair? Is it fair to say that that's what God wants from us? Now, does God want you to obey him because you've got to? Or does God want you to follow him and do what he's called us to do because we want to? So do we want to? All right. So here's what I'm concerned about. All right, folks, uh, we're going we're gonna to break down. I'm going to break down for you some things that I think that God has led us to doing. And I think we need to reconcile some of these things in our lives as a church but broken down to the lives of individuals because we own in this place, in this time in history, the task of the ministry. We would call this the Great Commission. We would call this living out the Word of God, trying to be salt and light in the world. And I was going to live under the banner that God did not call us simply to occupy, but to be uh, through a whole host of doctrine in the Word of God, the voice of God in the world pointing people to Jesus. That means doing something. Do you agree? Well, you sound reticent. You don't sound committed. So here's what, here, here's what I'm going to drive at then this morning. Um, God has given us things that we need to evaluate and consider how we're going to engage in ministry. Here's the point. Uh, while I've been traveling, I've had a few conversations with people. I want to tell you something that uh, is often given to church planters and often given to churches. And, and be, be careful to hear what I'm going to say evaluate it, be Bereans, and study it out. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Preaching the word of God is not enough. A church that faithfully preaches the word of God is not enough to protect the church from its doors closing and from being a light in its community and in the world, simply preaching the word of God is not enough. Now, there are reasons I'm saying this, 
And one of those reasons would be a testimony of a brother who uh, saw me while I was on, in these journeys, and he pulled me aside, and he said, we've been looking for a pastor for some time, and we've always been a church that has faithfully taught and stood on the doctrine of the Word. And in time and history, our church has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and now we don't have a pastor, and we're in jeopardy of closing our doors. And let me ask you, are there churches that have been in that same place and have closed their doors? Well, if you're not aware of that, that's happening all over America. Now, I don't want to be in this pulpit this morning telling you that I know the reasons why. I'm not going to stand and say, hey, I know for certain that it's because of this that those doors were closed. But I will tell you this. I don't think the Lord is interested in a church that preaches the word but doesn't do it. I don't think the Lord is interested in keeping the doors open of a church where people have come together on a Sunday to hear the word of God. We go do our thing in the week and we don't really live for the Lord, try to do anything for the Lord, and we come back and we do the same thing the next Sunday. And we go away and we come back and do the same thing next Sunday. Now you would know this from the book of James. God has not called us to be simply hearers of the word, but what? doers. Now, what is true for the, for the congregation as an individual is true for the congregation as a corporate body. Now, understand if you're here this morning and maybe you're not, uh, maybe you've not studied the word as, uh, as a, a course of uh, seeking God in your life, just know that God is the one who instituted the church. And the administration of the church is a legitimate doctrinal basis because God does organize his church so much so that he gives the title of pastors as overseers or under shepherds who are guiding the administration of that body. So I'm going to ask you something. Is that true? Again, you're quiet here. Is it true? Do you know your Bible? I'm not being condescending. Do you know your Bible? So does God give pastors to be overseers of, and administrators of his church? Yes, he does. And do pastors blow, blow that job? Do they mess it up? You bet, six ways from Sunday. I think it's the genius of God that yes, he gave pastors, but he gave a body as well. He gave believers to be involved in the administration of the church. This church, doctrinally, is not top heavy in its administration. This church, under my, uh, my belief of the Word of God and under your belief of the Word of God, we have come to an understanding of the Bible, meaning that we are the body of Christ and we are partners in ministry together. So what that means is we really try to listen to our people, but listening to our people is secondary. You really try to listen to your pastor, but listening to your pastor is secondary. Who are we listening to? We're trying to follow God together. Amen? We're trying to follow him together. And that means then that we have some things that we have to discuss and sometimes wrestle through and figure out. But again, God has not called us simply to be here in this place and preach and teach the word of God. There comes a time where what we know has to turn into a doing. Now, in that... I'm going to break down for you um, a different aspect of this as, uh, as it's been a part of the journey 
that we have been on in trying to make sure that we are doing what we're supposed to do. So many of you have heard, this has only been underscored through, uh, through our journey. This has been happening for quite a while. Uh, that we've been hearing a shortage of laborers going into the harvest. So I'm going to give you four Ps this morning uh, as what we've come to in trying to see what God wants us to do as a church. So when God says, or when we we hear men say, I should say, that there are a, a shortage of laborers going to the harvest, I want to ask you something. Do you think that's true? And, and if you say yes, why do you think it's true that there's a shortage of laborers? Why do you think that's true? Not what causes it, but why do you think it's true? Well, I'm going to give you answers. So, um, time and time again, Pastor Phil and I have been meeting with people, and there are people that are looking at churches that don't have pastors, and they're underscoring the same thing all the time. Nobody to go there, nobody to go there, no laborer to go there. We just came back from a conference where the testimony of the conference was that the number of people in missions in that mission agency that have died or retired or, uh, or older far exceeds, far exceeds those that are coming into the mission field. That story is, is true all over the place. Uh, right here in Idaho, there are churches that need pastors. Right here, not far from us, there are churches that need pastors. And when I say churches that need pastors, I'm not talking about every church. I'm just talking about churches that are like our church that are standing on the Word of God. Okay? So, if there is a truly a problem that way, what it has done to us is drive us to, well, what does God say about it? And what does God want us to do? So, in this, we believe the first answer to laborers going to the harvest is understanding that prayer is fundamental to the issue. It's Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, if you need to go there. Matthew 9, 37 through 38. So we understand in the doctrine of Matthew 9, 37 and 38, that we're to pray, but it is God who puts anybody in ministry. It's God that puts anybody in ministry. Matthew 9, 37 and 38, then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is, you know the word, what is it? The harvest is as plenteous, but the laborers are. So you have a conflict. The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Does that mean nothing can get done in ministry? No. It means that God's going to use who he's called, who he's placed, to do the work that he has given them to do. He says, therefore, in verse 38, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Who is it that puts laborers into the harvest? Who is it that does it? Say it again. Who is it that does it? It's God that does it. Now, I'm going to qualify this in just a moment. But it's God that puts laborers into the harvest. It's God that does it. Do we want people serving because they've been manipulated by men? Do we want people doing what they do because some man or some institution put pressure on them? No, if people are going to endure in ministry, they have to do it because they love the Lord. They have to do it because fundamentally their life is the Lord's. Now, I'm going to quickly go from praying, and I'm not giving a head nod to that and just moving on. We believe that as a church, we need to be praying for laborers for the harvest. Will we agree to do that? So we need to pray for 
servants to go into the harvest. But that is not all he's given us to do. He's told us to preach this message. And you could base it on Matthew 28, 19, and 20. But honestly, <clears throat> I'm going to come back to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can go there. We're not going to spend a long time in 2 Corinthians, but go there for a moment. Excuse me. We are to preach this message. Now, I'm going to tell you that I believe that in our preaching, we need to preach the whole counsel of God. I hope that's why you come to this church. I hope that that's what we do. I hope that that, while it's our goal, that it's something that we're accomplishing. That we open our Bibles, we get into the Word of God, we see what it says, and we hope to be faithfully communicating what God has said. And when we speak of the whole council, we mean exactly that, that we don't shun any passages, we don't avoid any passages, we preach and teach the Word of God. Now, verse 14, sorry, ahead of myself, verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. What's the point? Verse 11 is that we are trying to, by the directive of God, and knowing that there's an accountability before God for the life that we hold and the stewardship of this life, there's coming a day where the stewardship of this life will be held accountable, at least in two ways. For those that don't know Christ, there will be an accountability of judgment for those who have stepped over the gospel and, and decided to reject Christ. That accountability is eternal judgment. We know about that through Revelation 20, many other passages. In other words, there's hell and the lake of fire. Paul says, that motivates me to get into people's lives, to tell them who Jesus is. Now, before we go any further, God still saves sinners. This church needs to rejoice that this week, Paul and Ariel Treat in this office back here on Monday accepted Jesus as their Savior. And their testimony, they aren't in town right now, their testimony is when they come back, they want to be baptized as obedient disciples and followers of Jesus Christ and all God's people said. So we're to preach and teach that Jesus needs to be accepted as Savior. We're also to preach and teach the whole counsel of the Word of God, that God did not just call you to salvation so that you could go to heaven. Verses 14 and 15 give us further preaching of what we're to tell, and that is that the love of God, uh, Christ constrains us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And then what we realize is that those which are alive now then and saved are not supposed to live the rest of their lives unto themselves. God has called us to preach and teach a consecrated life to every believer. Every believer has to come to a place of owning the consecrated life that God has called you to. That your life belongs to God. Now, I did take time and preached about this when I was on that passage. But, you know, time would fail us to go over all the passages that talk about consecration. 
So consecrated are we to be that you have verses that, I give you Galatians 2.20 so often because this became a life verse for me. The verse says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. First Peter 1, 15 and 16, be ye holy as I am holy, because it's written, be, I'm going to mess it up, but be ye holy, okay? Because he says, I am, and you're to be a reflection of me. So God is not interested in just part of your life. He's interested in all of you. Who are you, who am I, that God would want all of me? But he does. It is the theme verse for this church, 1 John 1, 3, that there is an invitation of fellowship that God has given his children. That he wants to walk in that koinonia, that fellowship, that partnership with him. That's what he calls it. So he really is interested in walking with us every day, all of our lives, until we are safely delivered to his presence where we will be with him for eternity. But we pray and we preach. Now, some of you in this room have begun to feel that pressure. You've been feeling that pressure of the Spirit and that pressure of the Word of God, and, and you have been feeling, I, I believe that I need to be serving God, but I don't know how. I believe I need to be giving my life completely to the Lord, but I don't know how. And I'm going to say, you don't need to worry about all the how, you just need to surrender. That needs to be your starting point. And that starting point has to be born out of a love for the Lord. So it's important to know that God has called us to pray, but there needs to be a faithful preaching that it's not just hearing about the love of God. It's not just about hearing how I can escape hell. God has called us to a doctrine of the Word of God where we understand redemption. This whole passage of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is how to be reconciled to God. But it is also contained and latent within that message that our lives then belong to Him. And they belong to Him completely. From there, we've talked about many wanting a costless um, Christianity. And I, I'm going to come back to a, a problem in the mindset. Some people believe that if I give my life completely over to the Lord, I'm somehow going to miss some good thing. And I want to tell you that it is the most blessed thing in the world that you can be is to be saved and surrendered to God. It is, it is the best place in the world you can be. Somehow we've got to get past that mindset that, uh, that if I gave my life to the Lord, somehow he's going to mess it up. My point in the preaching is that God tells us in our preaching, yes, it needs to be about salvation, but at its core, it needs to be about surrender. So when we're looking for the answer to a shortage of laborers in the harvest, 
We believe that we need to be praying. We believe that we need to be preaching. And then we also believe that we need to be partnering. Now, before I get to that third P about partnership, I need to come back to the scope of what we're talking about when we say that we need to pray for laborers to go in the harvest. We need to preach a surrendered life for servants to go and surrender themselves to the harvest. We need to talk about who is that talking to. Now, I want to make sure that we all get this. When God talks about surrender, he is talking about every believer. Now, has God called every believer to be a pastor? Has God called everybody to be a full-time vocational missionary? Full-time vocational, for those of you younger, that means that you get paid, get missionary support, that you live of the gospel because that's where all your financing comes from to go through life. Has God called everybody to do that? No. Now, the shortage of laborers, I think sometimes we put that in the context of, well, he's talking about pastors or he's talking about missionaries. And while we're going to focus on that need in just a moment, I believe that that shortage is really a shortage throughout Christianity and it's no wonder. And you know why it's no wonder? For there are many churches who are simply faithfully preaching the word of God with no actionable plan to accomplish the word of God. And so we hear, but we don't do. And I will tell you, now hear me, hear me well in this. <clears throat> I'm nobody, but I have some experience. I know what this ministry was like when there were 22 people in it. When there were 22 people in it, what do you think we wanted? You might say more people. Not really. What we wanted was a church that partnered together to do the work of God out of a love for him. Now, do you think that a church of 22 needs laborers? Hello? Do you know that when we started, some of you are going to have to help my memory, but when we started, I don't think we did Sunday school. I'm pretty sure we did not do Sunday school. When we started, we didn't really have children's ministries right away. You know why we didn't? You know why? Because men know what it's like to listen to women. And Martha Best and Nora Estes said, we can't do everything. We can't do nursery and we can't do children's ministries for all these services. We only have so much that we can do. So does the church need, in that context, 22 people, do we need laborers? Okay. This church averages right at 300. You know what I've learned? This church needs laborers. It's no different. God, I believe, and I, I can, I think, stand with authority on this statement. God does not care a whit about the size of a church. Matter of fact, so passionately do I believe that, I recoil against someone saying, I like my church because it's this size, or I won't go to church that church because it's that size. 
I want to throw that up against the Bible and, and, and say, does that stand against the Word of God? It isn't about size. It's about a body partnered together to serve God. And there's room for you to serve. Now, in that, I want to remind you that there should be no place in this ministry where you feel like your arm is being twisted behind your back to get you to come and do something. Matter of fact, uh, I, I, I won't go through all the stories of why I, or how I learned this lesson, but you've heard me say it recently. I'm going to say it again. The greatest administrator of the body is who? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the greatest administrator of his body. And if you love him and are surrendered to him, he will tell you how to serve. He'll tell you where to serve. He'll tell you when you can. He'll tell you when you can't. And there is freedom. Come, his, his yoke is easy. His, his burden is light. It, it is no chore to feel like your arm is twisted behind your back to serve God when it's motivated out of a love for him. And that doesn't mean that you can say yes to everything. So you've heard us say this, you can't do everything but what? If you can't finish that statement, you haven't been listening. You can't do everything, but you can do what you can. And many churches have administratively gotten to a place corporately where they don't engage in other people's needs because they are so focused on their own. Well, we have a need here, therefore we can't help that person over there or help that ministry over there because we have our own needs here. And I will tell you, we reject that kind of teaching. God has never called us to give or serve when all of our needs were met and then we can finally step out and do something. We can't do it all, but we can do what we can. And nobody in this ministry needs to be bending somebody else's arm to do anything. Just live, surrender to the Lord and do what he says. But in that partnering, there is a foundational aspect of this ministry, and I'm, I'm opening the door here for those that don't know how this church is administrated to tell you what's happening at the core of our ministry. We try from, from the earliest of ages to have a discipleship-oriented ministry so that our young people going up through this church do not learn how to serve God when they leave this church. They learn how to serve God while they're in this church. And key to that ministry are many people. Cynthia Winchester is largely important to that ministry. It used to be Alice Bergdahl's job. Judy Failer had it as well, where they were administrators of the Sunday schools and, and working through the junior church program and providing our young people access for how to serve. Truth Trackers is much the same thing. It's not just that we're trying to reach the world outside of the church. It's that we're giving training to our people inside the church so that they can do the work of the ministry. Do you know why we spend money and why we give for our kids to go on missions trips? So that they will learn to do ministry. So they will be discipled in the doing of the work. But it's all under the banner of God is the one who told us to train people to do the work. Take your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4.
While you're turning there, I'm totally bypassing 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, where God administers to his body the giftedness of people within the body, that you know that God put people in the church because he wanted them there? Did you know that God does not, I said this to Pastor Phil, and I, we were just having heart-to-hearts yesterday, we were waiting to get picked up to go to the airport. This church does not need another Jeff Estes and all God's people said, That's right. Some people wondered when we hired Pastor Phil, one, there was a comment of, well, why do we need another pastor? And I would simply ask, have you felt the benefit of having a Pastor Phil? No? Some asked what he was going to do. And I, by the way, those are legitimate questions. There's nothing wrong with those questions. But the answer to that is he's going to serve according to his giftedness in a pastoral heart. And that's what he's done. And the ministry has been benefited, but the church doesn't need another Pastor Phil. The church doesn't need another you. The church, by the administration of God, needs you. You matter to the work of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, which I guess we better take my Bible there, you'd think we'd have it memorized by now. It says he gave prophets, pastors, verse 11, he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So what are pastors supposed to be, what are these people supposed to be doing? They are facilitators for God's people to serve. We're supposed to be aiding you and helping you accomplish what God has called you to do. That's why you have a pastor up here telling you that it is the Holy Spirit who's the best administrator. You don't really need me coming to you and saying this is how you should serve. But when you want to serve, we need to find a partnership together that does that for the love of God, for the cause of Christ, and for the gospel, and for discipleship. But we do this in training people so that you can be equipped to do what God has called you to do. Now, when you find those people, you pray, and you preach, and you prepare, there really does need to be a partnership with those people to help them accomplish what God has called them to do. When I say them, I both mean lay people who are not in full-time vocational ministry, as well as those that are going to full-time vocational ministry. Now, I want, I'm taking time to say all this because I think it's important to know that we're going to take a turn in this, and we're going to talk specifically more about those who are full-time vocational servants because there is a shortage and there is a need. And I simply, and Pastor Phil and those who have been a part of the conversation, you don't want to hear a problem, stand outside of that problem and simply wag your head about the problem and, and, and stand before the church and preach, hey, there's a problem and do nothing about it. So our methodology has come back. We've had these very specific questions Make sure that what we're doing is based on the doctrine behind it. 
And I'm telling you that there is a doctrine behind it. God has told us to pray. He's told us to preach. He's told us to prepare. And he's told us to partner. Now that is found, frankly, all over the place. But take your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. This is only one passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. Again, I'm, I'm not even connecting this with the whole weight of doctrine of 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 and other passages. You don't need 16 passages to make this point, but they're there. Here's what it says in verse 9. For we are laborers, 1 Corinthians 3, 9, we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry, you are God's building. Laborers, we are co-partners together. We are partners together to do the work of the ministry. And what this church is doing in discipleship is we're trying to partner, especially with our young people, to train them in ministry, to give them exposure to ministry, so that we can help them know how to serve God with their abilities and their gifts. It's even what's happening in this service. This is Discipleship 101, teaching how we love God, how we live for Him, and what does that look like. And what I'm saying at its end is that we cannot simply pray. We cannot simply preach. We actually have to do the work of the ministry, and that involves partnership, excuse me, preparation and partnership. So where is our mission field? Where is our mission field? Yes and no. It's not everywhere. It is in one context. Where is our mission field? Right here. If we don't do it here, we're not going to do it there. And I'm going to tell you that many of us have a context that missions is over the pond or over the waters. Missions happens right here. And through this ministry, there's a Jerusalem, a Judea, a Samaria. There's the uttermost parts. And yes, we are to minister to all of it. But we're to be doing that right here. And what we're trying to do is establish ourselves as a ministry with a proper foundation that isn't simply standing in a place where we have come together as a church to hear the word of God, but that we look at God's plan and engage in God's plan. Now, in that plan, there is creativity to how that gets done. God doesn't spell out every last way that you're to prepare, or excuse me, prepare people and then partner with them. But let me go one step further, and I know, I know we're short on time. But in that partnership, there are many in independent Baptist churches who have been so independent in your history that all you know is independence. And I'm going to tell you that there is doctrine in the Word of God that speaks of interdependence as well. Churches of like faith and like practice partnering together to do the work of God. That's frankly what you have in 1 Corinthians 3, but it's also what you have in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and time fails me to go over those passages this morning. But if you look at those passages, you're going to find a church in one city raising funds to help a church in another city. You find that they are working together to try to accomplish something for God and an interdependence that looks like what the Bible represents. 
So what are we doing then? This is what's driving the practice behind what we're presenting to the church. So what we present to the church is in our past, we've had interns here. Why do we have interns here? We're fond of saying this without disrespecting the intern. We do not have an intern because we need one. We're able to accomplish the ministries that God has given us without having an intern. So why do we have an intern? We have interns so that we can invest in those who are going into full-time ministry so that we can prepare them for the work of God. Now, I will tell you, pastors can be passionate and pastors can get it wrong. In our passion, we can say things we ought not say. And I heard one guy say this, if a church is, um, is not raising up their next pastor out of their own own congregation, then their church is illegitimate and their doors should be shut. And I would say, I appreciate your passion, but I disagree. And here's why. He didn't come from this area. Guess where I was born? Mississippi. Raised in Indiana, lived in New Jersey, Wisconsin, South Carolina, none of that says Western. And I want to tell you, some guys say, well, we want people to come out here because we want them to be exposed to the West and want them to take up ministry in the West. That would be a great thing, and I think that would be a residual benefit. I don't care where they land. Land somewhere and serve God. And we have an opportunity as a church to engage in that process. And you know what it's going to take? It's going to take, I will tell you, having an intern here is a second job for me, but it's a second job that I love. I do it because I do not see it, I do not look at it as a job, although I know it takes work. And by the way, while we have interns here, while we don't need them, our church benefits when we have them. And so here's what we're actually proposing. So first of all, you have to know that I'm, I am burdened with zeal. <laughs> I am burdened because of my age. I'm burdened because of uh, what I've gone through. I'm burdened because of the doctrine. There's a pastor named Chuck Phelps in Colonial Hills Baptist Church in Indiana. Pastor Phelps has had this for a long time in his history. He, is, he has interned over a hundred young men going into ministry. If I did one man a year and I was here 10 more years, that would only be 10. I want to do better. So we're proposing that we actually have two interns here this next summer. Now, by the way, if we did it, God would have to provide it. God would have to give it, but we're willing, but it's going to take money. It means that we have given $5,000 in the past for an intern. By the way, you know why we're doing that? I sat in front of a young man stop it. So, I sat in front of a young man who is training for the pastorate. And he said, I, I really want to be an intern. I want training to be a pastor, but I can't because I got to step out of school so I can earn money so I can come back. And I said, you're not hearing me. Why does it have to be either or? 
Why can't it be both and? And what I'm trying to do as a pastor is lead us as a people by the word of God, with the passion of the word of God, and engage in the work of God so that a man can get trained in ministry and at least make what he would make if he was working at Home Depot, at Costco, at Walmart. Give him a, a wage so that he could actually go back to school, get training in ministry, and grow. Why wait another year? Now, what I am thrilled about is that you, you are who make this possible. Our internship program, we have preached and we have taught and we have said, it is not only a ministry of your pastors. This has to be a congregational ministry where you recognize you're going to have a guy come up and preach. It's going to be his first time. He's going to be stilted. He's going to be stymied. He's going to have trouble. He won't know how to do things. And you're, you're going to encourage him. You're going to have a young lady, and by the way, we haven't gone down this road yet, but hear me, God has not called just men to ministry in full-time service. He's called men and women, and we're for it. And we want to put our dollars behind it. I was talking to a brother about this, and uh, he's as passionate as I am, have mercy. And uh, he, said, he said, if a church isn't doing this, what? are they doing? So if this church isn't bent on the process of discipling our people for ministry, but also taking those who are surrendered to full-time vocational ministry, if we're, not, if we're not trying to help those people, what are we doing? Where do we think pastors are going to get training from? Pastors don't get their training and pastoral work in colleges. They can learn Greek and they can learn books and we do get training. But the hands-on training, do you know where that happens? In the local church. And you and I have an opportunity as partners together to do something about it. I do not want this church to simply say that we love the Lord and not make decisions that direct us in the doing of ministry where we don't do it. Matter of fact, I, I've had people say this in just different ways. I had one guy say one time, and this is years ago. I had one guy say one time, you know, when we have business meeting, we talk about increasing the pastor's salary. We talk about doing something to the building. I think all of our money needs to go to missions and go to serving people over. What do they think this place is? Is this mission work or not? Do you know why I am here? Do you know what happened when I came here? I went out for three months and raised missionary support as a missionary to go where? Here. This is a place on the map that God has called us. And there is a work to do. We've talked about as well. You know, I'm telling you folks, I don't know what we're going to do. I really don't. It's a church conversation. But engaging in this, there have been two other churches that have said, you know, we would like to have an intern, but we really don't know that we could afford it. And so what we've stepped in and said is, can we partner with you? I'm going to tell you exactly how we got here. Somebody better go tell the junior church, you need to sing a couple more songs. Um... <laughs> Or release them to come back in here where they can hear this too. 
But sometimes churches tell themselves, we can't do that because we're not big enough. God does not care about size. But if we can come along and decide, and here's exactly how it happens. You are so gracious that when we have guest speakers come, you give them often. It's rare to see a love offering come out of this place where you guys haven't given them $1,500. Most of the time, it's over $2,000. Between $2,000 and $2,500 is where you give them. I think it's great. And I think we should continue every time. I can't tell you how many times I've heard those people cry and how many times they've said this is the biggest offering they've been, ever been given. That's great. I don't want to see that stop. But I want to tell you something. It's different to give a person $2,500 than giving them a co-laborer that lands in their property, in their church, where they get to train that servant for ministry and benefit from their co-laboring together. The two that we have selected that we want to try to encourage and help is one, Laramie Schrader in Bend, Oregon, who's had 10 years in ministry. He's got something to train and something to offer a young man going into ministry. The other one is Dave Schaff in Winnemucca, Nevada, bivocational, 20 years of ministry, who, by the way, God has already used your efforts in mentorship, your efforts in internship, and they took the model of what we did when John was here, and they took that to their ministry last year and did the same thing, and we're trying to encourage their church further to do it this year. Away from this conference, I don't know what God's going to do with us. I would love to have five young men come and say, we would love to partner with you and have a church that would say, we'll do it. Now, what would that mean? You know, it's money. It'd be $12,500 to do that with five churches. But out of a church that has over a half a million dollar budget, I think we ought to be able to come up with $12,500. It takes an investment. It takes energy. Sometimes we live in a scope of ministry where we can do ministry and it doesn't cost money. I don't know what kind of world that lives in. But I'm preaching to our church what I would say to the individual. We have an opportunity to do something and to lay up treasure in heaven. And what I'm saying, and I'm the cheerleader that gets this moment to say it, let's do something. Let's not stand outside of the work of God and say what I can't do. Now, I'm talking very, about a very specific plan for our church regarding interns, but that has a broader landscape. Or maybe another way of saying it is a very narrow focus. I'm just encouraging you to love the Lord and to live for him. Do something in the time that we've got. Do something in the time that we've got. While we were gone, a 21-year-old lady at Ironwood Camp died of an aneurysm. I preached chapel that morning. They prayed for her. And it was after chapel they found out she had died. The truth is you're living a life. The breath you have from God is a gift. And I thank the Lord that you're here. I thank the Lord that we are partners together. 
And in that partnership, I just simply want to do something. And I think we are. But I think we've got a lot to do and only so much time to do it. So messages like these do have a point of decision and you don't need to stress it. Here's the point of decision. Will you love him? Will you make a decision to love the Lord? Now you'd say, Pastor Jeff, I, I want to, but I don't know that I do. Well, just pray for the Lord to make you thirsty for him. I believe God always answers that prayer. Lord, make me want you more. I think the Lord likes to hear that prayer. Love him, and then I'm asking you to do something else. Live for him. And I don't pretend to think that means that everybody in this room is going to go to full-time vocational ministry. And I don't think you're supposed to. And I don't think you're supposed to feel the guilt of not doing it. But whatever God has called you to, live for him. Serve him. And by the grace of God, may we do something for his glory together.